From the rolling plains of Lincoln, Nebraska, it's Scott Colborne, and we wish you a hearty good morning. It's great to have you with us, whether you're at the workplace or just kicking around home. I've had a fantabulous week, and I'll tell you about it here in a little bit. First, let's welcome to the studio here, Jim on my left, and Colleen on his left. <laughs> good morning. Morning. It's great to have you both here. We have rock and roll on the rolling plains. Isn't that a <laughs> nice little bit of synchronicity? We've got tomorrow the uh, Lincoln Marathon. Yes, we do. And as I just said off microphone, all those people running and nobody chasing them. <laughs> I think we ought to have like a uh, delegated group of people chasing the runners, like dressed as like monsters or, I, you know, I, something. I believe that um, on occasion, and I'm, I'm not sure if it's in New York or any of the bigger cities, I can't really remember, but they do have what they call the zombie run, uh, where these people are dressed as zombies and they chase these runners, and it's a, I guess it's a marathon, except that there's people dressed as zombies chasing that you. Sounds kind of fun if you look at that, at <laughs> running as being fun. You, you know, I, I, I joke about it, but it is a, a remarkable accomplishment athletically. Yeah, you just mentioned and, uh, that one of our uh, uh, emeritus producers, Matt Mundorf, is running tomorrow. Yes, he's running the full, and Mrs. Mundorf, his wife, a.k.a. Patty, is running the half. So good luck to both of you. Uh, my buddy Chris, that surprised me last year from out at work, he's running. And uh, our uh, mutual friend, the mechanic, uh, his niece and her husband are, are running as well. So I've got some people to look out for when, you know, I have, a, I have a hard job. I get to sit on my butt at the finish line behind a microphone. And uh, so I'm, I'm not complaining. It's, it's the runners that do all the work. And it's just amazing. Looks like the weather might be pretty nice tomorrow, so if you're going to yeah. be out and about and not running, uh, you may want to plan your route so that you get to church or where you're going <laughs> well, absolutely. in a reasonable amount of time. Uh, look it up on the internet, uh, lincolnmarathon.org, and uh, you can see a map of the route. And uh, uh, 55 degrees predicted for start time tomorrow morning, which is mm. good temperatures for, for running. They don't like it too warm when, when they're out there running 26 miles. We've got a great program for you today. Our main guests, Rob and Trish McGregor, uh, authors of a whole bunch of books. The one I just read this week is Beyond Strange, True Tales of Alien Encounters and Paranormal Mysteries. First up is Charlene with Pet Talk from the Capital Humane Society. She should be right there. Good morning. Hey, Charlene, good morning to you and the crew out there. How are things going? Things are going really well, thank you. What's new at the Capital Humane Society? Well, we are going to have a dog adoption special today and tomorrow. So if you're looking for a canine companion, the adoption fee will be $25. Isn't that cool? Yep. And that is for dogs that are at least uh, five months or older. And rabies and license fees may apply. Uh, but we have quite a few uh, wonderful dogs, and it would be great for them to find wonderful homes. Okay. And that's uh, today through close of business? Uh, today and tomorrow. Today and tomorrow, okay. Do you want to start with dogs here? Sure. So I'm... we will start with little Lily. <laughs> and she is just a tiny little dog, just about seven pounds. A chihuahua, a miniature oh. pincher mix 
about two years old, has a lot of energy, very sweet and playful. Uh, she can be a little bit nervous because she's so little, so we do want her to meet kids prior to adoption. Um, and she does have some special needs that our adoption counselors can discuss with potential adopters. A Chihuahua Pincher mix. Isn't that a little bit unusual? <laughs> you can have like a little wagon hooked up to like have her like pull your sandwich in that like the little wagon. <laughs> and she could follow you around then. Yeah. Uh huh. I'm not sure she would like that too well. <laughs> well, so you get, she gets some treats too. Okay, her picture is up. Lily is the uh, the Chihuahua or Chihuahua. And uh, she's a combination pincher and chihuahua, and she's looking for a great home. And she's followed by... Roxy. And Roxy's 11 months old, a spayed female coon hound. So you got to love hounds. <laughs> she does like to bark and has typical hound behavior. Uh, when she first came in, she did not want to walk on a leash, and we have been working on that, and she's doing great. Um, but new environments can make her nervous, so she needs someone who's patient and experienced and will give her the training and direction that she needs. Looks like she's saying, seen any raccoons around here? I'm looking at her. Uh, we're, we're, be very, very quiet. We're hunting raccoons. <laughs> Roxy. Uh. Okay. Coonhound. Spade female, 11-month-old, 11 11 <laughs> toy boat, toy boat, toy boat. <laughs> Roxy is a great dog. Her picture's up at capitalhumanesociety.org. She joins Lily, and then there's... Sierra, and she's six months old, a Catahoula mix. She has beautiful markings, bright wow. eyes, a fabulous... Uh, attitude and personality. She's got plenty of growing to do, but once she does, uh, once she is fully grown, she may make a great running partner because she does have lots of energy. Uh, she needs a home without kids under eight because she is young and a little mouthy right now. Um, <laughs> and she does need someone who will provide plenty of training and exercise. Okay, uh, I don't know that we've had in recent memory a Catahoula uh, on the on the program. Very, so, yeah, very intelligent, um, larger dogs. So she, again, needs someone who can provide proper care for a larger breed dog. And take a look at her picture. Whatever is off camera, she is focused on that. She has <laughs> single attention, laser eyes, beautiful yeah. dog. Yeah, the markings are really quite interesting. One of these dogs that, that you could look at her coat and you can see different patterns each time you look. And, uh, you know, you could sit down with the kids and uh, it'd be like watching for patterns in the clouds. Just, you know, what can you see in the dog? <laughs> okay, so we've got this a Gingo Dog Mayo adoption promotion today and tomorrow. And uh, tell us about the fees on dogs five months old of, of age or older. It will be $25 for the adoption fee. There may be rabies and license deposits, um, but we do, again, have lovely dogs from the very little, like Lily, <laughs> to the larger breed. So if now is a time, a good time for you to add a dog to your family, um, please consider adoption. 
Yeah, there's some great dogs. So take a look. Uh, take a look at also the picture of uh, Libby. Uh, she's a cool-looking dog that I just spotted there. And I think we've talked about um, Pugsley. Yeah, take a look at Pugsley. Libby and Pugsley. That's my, those are my audibles that I just called. So Awesome. Okay, uh, time for Cats for Adoption. With Cats, we're going to start with Boots. And Boots is a pretty little cat, two years old, a spayed female, arrived as an owner surrender to our Humane Society and is ready to find a great new family that will adore her. She's always just prancing around, being very pretty and sweet. Oh, isn't that pretty? A mix uh -huh. of... Uh little gray and brown and white with little splashes of orange thrown in. That is a beautiful cat. A uh, boots and uh, her little paws looks like she's got boots on. That's a very fun cat. Take yeah. a look at boots. She could be the cats for you. Two cats are better than one, so there's Tommy boy. And he's a very handsome domestic medium hair, about two years old, mostly white with black. Uh, very fluffy, needs someone who's going to properly groom him. But he's also very clever and affectionate and will just be a fine sidekick. And look at that. He knows how to relax. Uh-huh. Just chilling out, waiting for you to come by. Yeah, I was, yeah, yeah, Tommy boy. Hey, Tommy boy. Hey, Tommy. It seems like a Chris Farley reference. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was a movie I think that he was in, wasn't it? Tommy boy. This is like a chocolate chip cat, mostly white with little splotches of black. <laughs> chocolate chip would have been a good name for him as well. There you go, yeah. Okay, and uh, next week is the kitten show, by the way, folks. We'll tell you more about that next week, but... uh. We'll actually have kittens raining from the skies. Boots, Tommy Boy, and now... Tabitha. And she's a beautiful blue-eyed Siamese, about two years old. She um, arrived as a lost pet. She's quite shy, so she's often hiding in one of those little cubbies. So she is looking for a quiet home where she feels nice and safe, and then she can show you her charming side. Oh, yeah, beautiful light blue eyes. Just gorgeous. Yep, uh, I think I think Siamese are pretty cool cats. I they had, are. I had Siamese cats, and they were they were wonderful. So, Tabitha is two years old. Take a look at her picture. We've talked about Boots, Tommy Boy, and Tabitha, and um, we've had a great mix of dogs. We've got that promotion on dogs today. So, Charlene, what are hours today and tomorrow? Our Pylock Pet Adoption Center is open today and tomorrow from 11 to 5.30. Okay, and kitten shower next weekend. That's right. That'll be a lot of fun, so people may want to come and join us. It'll be from 11 to 2 at our Pylock Pet Adoption Center. You can meet some of the kittens available for adoption, have some refreshments. Um, we do have a wish list. We need kitten supplies to offer to our foster families who take kittens in that may be too small for the adoption program. So they help us out a lot by providing foster care, and then we provide everything they need, so the uh, kitten food, things like that. So there is a wish list if you'd like to donate. Okay, Charlene, thank you for all that you do. I hope you have a great rest of the weekend. Thank you. I hope your weekend's great, too. 
Charlene and friends at the Capital Humane Society make them the first place you go when you want to adopt a dog or a cat. And that's capitalhumanesociety.org. Wow, and I was looking at some of the other cat pictures, and they have a lot of great-looking cats up now, so now's the time. Yeah, we just talked uh, moments ago about Matt Mundorf. We haven't heard from him for a while. I wonder what he's doing. Oh, I don't know what he's going to be doing tomorrow. He'll be running. Next week's guest is Cheryl Costa. She's a first-time guest, and Cheryl is the co-author with Linda Costa of UFO Sightings Desk Reference, uh, the United States of America, 2001 to 2015. And uh, so we'll have a bunch of statistics and perhaps uh, a peek at some trends taking place in UFO sightings. Our first-time guest, Cheryl Costa, next week. And Richard Sowell is coming up two weeks from today. Nebraskan Bigfoot Research. Uh, He'll be talking about local Bigfoot sightings in and around Lincoln and in Nebraska, in addition to the national international research that he's conducting and has been involved in. I heard his presentation in February uh, on an uh, uh, interesting DNA study uh, trying to trace back the origins of Bigfoot. And that was at the second annual Nebraska Bigfoot Conference. Three weeks from today, we've got a big day. And May 26, we're going to raise $1,500 or more from you folks, the listeners, uh, $1,500 in donations during the big spring fundraiser. And uh, we're celebrating 33 years of broadcast of our radio program. It'll give you a chance to uh, put some money where your ears have been, weeks, months, or years, listening to Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. And we look forward to your support on that date, May 26th. Uh, join others as we have lots of fun, some great guests, and we raise at least $1,500 in Lister donations. And it goes uh, a long, long way to help uh, a great radio station. Mm-hmm. Okay, with us next is Preston Dennett. Preston's from California, and... Uh, we just had Preston on the show talking about undersea UFO base. Preston, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? How's the new book going? Oh, great. Yeah, still getting lots of interest, so I'm excited, yeah. You've probably been a really busy guy with all the uh, the conversations and people wanting to, to talk with you there. Uh, releasing a new book also gets a lot of interest in some of your older titles as well. It does, yeah. Yeah, it's really a great time in my life right now. And one day, I'd love to be able to do this full-time. I'm not there yet, but boy, one day I think I could be. Oh, that's my hope for you, my friend. That's my hope, to wake up and have your cup of coffee, your cup of tea, and say... What kind of adventure do I want to have today? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I just drove down to a Coronado Island, you know, just north of the Mexican border, to do a 
television shoot for Nerdist.com, I think they're called. Talk about the Coronado Island UFO incident, one of my books uh, that I co-wrote with one of the witnesses. So that was a lot of fun. Do you, off the top of your head, not trying to pin you down, do you remember much about that? Uh, you may not have that book right in front of you, but um, what what happened there? Oh, yeah. I'll never forget it. I was actually there when it occurred. It was on March really? uh, 14th. Yeah. March 14th, 1994, there was this UFO conference, and uh, Bud Hopkins was speaking, Colin Andrews, Yvonne Smith, John Carpenter, a lot of the big names in the field. And uh, I was I had a friend who lived on the island, so it was perfect. And uh, I went down to stay at his house. Clinton, President Clinton was due to stay there in like two days after the conference. And uh, my friend, he lived on Ocean Avenue, and Clinton was staying like, gosh, five houses down at the house of the Swiss ambassador. So there was Secret Service all over the island. It was mm-hmm. just a crazy incident. But yeah, it, it occurred at the Village Inn. I just went there to the same hotel. When people were staying in the same rooms where this incident actually occurred. It occurred in the Village Inn in three adjacent rooms to six different people. Mike Evans, his wife, two other ladies, uh, Lori and Nancy, and Nancy's brother and his wife were in the third room. And on that evening, the evening uh, before the conference, actually, everyone had driven down there and they were staying in the hotel room, and they all had an encounter on the same night in the same hotel. And you know what? They're not the only ones I found out. There was other people staying in another hotel who also had an encounter that night. Um, I didn't. Oh my gosh, you know, I missed out on that one. But a really interesting encounter. Each of them was visited by gray type ETs who came in and uh, took one of the occupants out of the room, presumably into a UFO, and, uh, you know, abducted them, did whatever they had to do never did find out really what happened in the onboard experience and uh, returned them. Just a really bizarre encounter and it's the strangest place for it to happen because Coronado Island, I don't know if you know much about it. but this I is, don't know. It's, gosh, it's so densely populated. There's not a square inch of open land, really. It's uh, quasi-military. This is where the Navy trains the Navy SEALs. There's a naval air station on one end of the island. Mm-hmm. So it's just impossible for me to imagine that, you know, a least likely place to have a UFO encounter. Well, let's, let's, let's pick it up right there with what you just said, that this is one of the least likely places to have a UFO encounter. Nevertheless, You've just said that at least six people, if not more, did. And this comes two days before President Clinton was supposed to be there. Right. It doesn't take further strange things. It doesn't take a lot on my end to put a couple of these dots together with lines and say the ETs wanted to send a message. 
exactly. That's exactly what I'm thinking. Like, look what we can do and you can't stop us. Or do you want to see how we do this? Or, or something. Because actually, before this incident occurred, two of the witnesses were eating dinner at the Coronado Hotel, really famous hotel. And uh, they noticed that their waiters were acting very peculiar and seemed to be listening in on their conversation. And they're wondering if one of these guys was even a waiter at all. Because they, after they finished eating, they're walking back to their hotel room. And Nancy turns to Lori and says, I think we're being followed. <laughs> and so they start turning corners. And sure enough, this guy is following them. He looks like a classic Secret Service agent. Follows them all the way to their hotel. Um, really got them nervous. Hmm. And though they aren't the only witnesses who noticed these Secret Service personnel, you know, combating the whole area here. Mm-hmm. So, so that's you, where I was staying. You've got you've got Secret Service person. all over the island. You've got a, a big naval base there. Lots of density, people all over. And Clinton shows up is going to show up two days later. Big UFO conference. This is the eve of it. And at least six people have a face-to-face experience. Well, that's a, that's a huge message. Right. You know, and I looked up the history of Coronado. I'm thinking, well, I'm going to find more UFO sightings here. I found one. Just one. Which is really unusual for any area. Mm-hmm. Um, you can usually find a, a good dozen encounters for pretty much anywhere on our, our planet. Um, just one. It was a really impressive one. Two ladies were driving around and late at night and saw these this object way up high. And they, I think they blinked their car lights at it. And it drops down out of the sky and they became very frightened because what they thought was a little light turned out to be the size of a Greyhound bus, a metallic object right above their car. And they went screeching off and ran away. Wow. Oh, yeah. Just a really odd place for a UFO encounter. It's covered with police, too, by the way. The police are just crisscrossing back and forth at all times. Lots of tourists. Very, very touristy. Um, I just can't imagine that these ETs weren't observed by somebody. Yeah, let alone for uh, some of the secure airspace. You know, the radar, both uh, there at the naval base as well as the look-down stuff. Uh, If you're going to have Clinton showing up, they're going to have satellites in the sky saying, okay, let's look down on this place. You know, this is a pretty important deal. We've got the president showing up. And They've tried to say, oh, maybe it's mind control or, you know, my lab, military uh, abduction, sort of masquerading as an alien, which is, you know, one of the theories that's bouncing around there. I don't think so, because looking at these witnesses, they have encounters stretching back to childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, when they were little tiny kids, these, these people were having encounters. So, I don't know. It's like they were all brought together. Very strangely coincidental. And uh, did they did they realize in the moment of the encounter that they were having the encounter or was that blank from their minds and uh, an an amnesia of sorts settled in? Yeah, that's another strange thing. Um, No, they didn't realize. Um, Most of them didn't. Mike Evans, 
not for him, probably this would never have come to light. Because that evening, he didn't realize anything unusual had occurred. He remembered the room filling up with light and assumed it was an airplane, even though there's no flight path near his hotel. And when he woke up the next morning, there was a spot of blood on his pillow. I thought, well, I must have hit my lips in the bathroom in the middle of the night because he had gotten up to go to the bathroom. But his lip was fine. And his wife's like, well, you know, let's, let's, let's examine him. They found a hole in his ear, you know, this little puncture wound. And he's like, no, I hit my lip. I hit my lip. I hit my lip. And she's like, well, no, you didn't. <laughs> he says, yes, I did. And he kind of insisted on it, almost as if it was a post-hypnotic suggestion, which I believe it probably was because he would not let this go. Mm-hmm. He felt terrible that morning and uh, knew something had happened and mentioned it at breakfast to uh, Nancy. And Nancy had an unusual night, too. <laughs> she had nightmares. She didn't sleep well. She woke up, she was fluish, and when she woke up, her bedspread, this is so bizarre, but I've run across this a couple of times, her bedspread had been rolled up like a Tootsie Roll and tucked in under the mattress around her neck, of all places. Um, So she couldn't get up in the morning. She's like, ah, I can't get up, I can't get up. Her blanket was holding her down, her bedspread had been tucked in purposefully. I mean, there's just no way that this was, you know, tossing around in your sleep. And when I heard that, I'm like, oh my God, I I heard that in another case. Same exact thing. In my mind, I'm thinking this is a a calling card, a little clue. The ETs left to say we were here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know. And Lori, who was in Nancy's room, She's a conscious abductee. By that, I mean she remembers everything. And she heard everyone talking, and she just clammed up because she didn't want to talk about it. She hates this. Whenever she goes out, a lot of her friends, she's lost her friends because of this. They'll have an encounter with her. Mm -hmm. So she's blaming herself. And uh, remember, you know, these great type ETs coming in and taking Nancy out of the room, up through the roof. And uh, she couldn't move. She was paralyzed the whole time until they finally returned her, returned her roommate. But yeah, she gave a great description of these ETs. All the witnesses eventually, someone under hypnosis, gave the same exact description of these gray type ETs, which all have slight variations, you know, in the field. But they also know that really sharp, pointy chins, which is definitely not something I've heard a lot. This is Preston Dennett, a fascinating story uh, that he recounts from his book, The Coronado Island UFO Incident. And I'm going to have to grab that out of my bookcase and read that again. Um, Boy, you've really piqued my interest, Preston. Yeah, you know what, I think it's a smoking gun case because it's got an enormous amount of physical evidence and an enormous number of witnesses. Nancy ended up having an implant put in her body during this encounter, as did Mike Evans, but Nancy had her implant removed and studied by Dr. Roger Lear. So, yeah, it's a great case. Undeniable evidence, in my if, mind. If you ever want to, if Mike Evans would be open to this, if you ever want to get to Mike or one of the other witnesses, 
let's plan a future program and have you on with one or more of these people. You know, I'd love to, but they've all pulled back. Mm-hmm. I, I tried to get Mike to talk about this on the Coronado Island when I drove down there, but he didn't want to do it. Neither did Nancy. Uh, Lori has pulled out completely. Uh, Phil Knight, Gina, his wife, or P- Patricia, rather, absolutely not. She refused to be interviewed initially. So they all kind of pulled back in terms of publicity and talking about this. They said, go ahead, you can talk about it all you want, but we don't want to. Mm-hmm. I, Which, I understand. I've uh, been a part of a support group since 1988, so I understand that there's a kind of a rolling waveform of, of peak interest and then uh, almost denial and distancing from the subject, uh, and that kind of comes and goes. So, I, you know, I've always yeah. told people just to, to honor that. Uh, if it's uh, supposed to be something you're focused on, then do it. Uh, there may be reasons why you're being told to stay away from the subject and honor that as well. Preston, we're out of time, so we got to go, but I want to thank you so much for uh, just off the top of your head talking about such an interesting case. You do lead such an interesting life, my friend. <laughs> yeah, I'm having a lot of fun, that's for sure. Okay, looking forward to talking with you again. Uh, have a great rest of the weekend. I sure will. Thanks. You too. Preston Dennett, his latest book is Undersea UFO Base. And if you typed in Preston Dennett to your favorite search engine, he's going to pop right up. I don't know how he does it, but it just does that every time. PrestonDennett.Weebly.com. The scene and the unseen with Preston Dennett. Wasn't that cool, Jim? That was. What an interesting story. Uh, I think he does the search engine thing with alien technology. They, they fix it, so he always mm. pops up first. We've got a, a kind of a big break here, and we'll be back with our, uh, our guests. That's Rob and Trish McGregor. Looking forward to talking with them about their book, Beyond Strange, True Tales of Alien Encounters and Paranormal Mysteries. I'm Scott Colborn with Colleen and Jim. And you guys and gals, we are exploring unexplained phenomena. We'll be right back. Hi dudes and dudettes, it's Carol Griswold from Women's Blues and Boogie on your community radio station, 89.3 FM, KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. Support for KZUM comes from Eagle Printing and Sign at 14th and N in downtown Lincoln. In business for over 20 years, Eagle offers a variety of printing services for first-time customers to long-time professionals, plus creative and design services. More at 402-476-8156 and eagleprintingandsign.com. And Pinewood Bowl Theater, presenting the Great Pinewood Bluegrass Festival on Sunday, May 20th at the Pinewood Bowl Theater in Lincoln's Pioneers Park. With horseshoes and hand grenades, mandolin orange, the devil makes three, and green sky bluegrass. Tickets at Ticketmaster.com. This program is made possible in part by a grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. 
and the Nebraska Recycling Council, helping to protect the natural environment and extend the life of our landfill, reminding Lincoln and Lancaster County that corrugated cardboard will not be accepted at the landfill beginning April 1st. For more on recycling services and area drop-off sites, nrcne.org or 402-436-2384. The full moon lights the silver rails winding around dark mountains and over steep gorges of jagged rock and one freezing cold rushing Black Mountain River. I wish there was enough time to describe all of the funny twists and turns that led up to now, but there isn't enough time because there's a ticking clock and the two passengers we care most about don't know anything about it. To see what happens next, visit read.gov to read The Exquisite Corpse, a riveting adventure pieced together by John Sheska, Shannon Hale, Daniel Handler, and other popular authors. Explore new worlds. Read. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. My name is Manny Morales. I'm 45 and I coach youth football. It's still hard to believe because the high school me was a work in progress. But big brothers, big sisters give me a real role model. And the young me needed a role model bad. My bigger brother's name is Ray, and Ray is the reason that this seven-year-old grows up to be a role model himself. Whether you donate money or time, you're helping Big Brothers Big Sisters help a child. Start something today at BigBrothersBigSisters.org. Brought to you by Big Brothers Big Sisters and the Ad Council. Far from the din of commercial culture and just this side of the abstract is a place I call Mesoterra. I'm Vic Valverde, your tour guide for an eclectic musical excursion on a program called Mesoterra. Saturdays, 12 noon until 1.30, right here on KZUM. Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. Colleen's here. It's sure great to have her back. My friend Jim Shorty. He'll be at the finish line of the Lincoln Marathon tomorrow. And uh, do you have time, Jim, for my, my off-the-wall story about the marathon? Sure. Okay. Years ago, I lived in the near south neighborhood, and they routed the Lincoln Marathon right by the front of my house. Mm-hmm. So they'd sent out a pamphlet or a door hanger saying, could you volunteer to provide uh, a water hose and I said, sure, I can do that. So it was supposed to be a, a, a rather hot, humid day. And some runners might want to be just misted. Yeah, some might yeah. want to have a drink from the water hose. Sure. And so this is my former life. I'm, mind mm-hmm. you now, okay? <laughs> I've cleaned my act up. So I'm out there. And I've got my Hawaiian shirt on. Flip-flops. I've got a chair out by the street. And I'm smoking a cigarette. I have a bottle of Jack Daniels, and I've got my water hose. And so when runners would go by, I would hold up the bottle of Jack Daniels or the water hose and have them choose. <laughs> and some people took it in the, the fun it was intended to. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't remember anybody choosing the Jack Daniels, but I had some people that that jogged by and looked at me and shook their head like, you dirty son of a gun, you shouldn't be out there like that. Uh, I was sort of doing my Hunter, uh, Hunter S. Thompson yeah, does Hunter Lincoln S. Marathon. Hunter S. Thompson thing. And that's one of the things that's frequently commented on about the Lincoln Marathon that some of the other cities don't have is the number of people out along the course that do stuff like that to cheer up the runners yeah. and, and encourage them and 
and cheer them on, you know, to make it to that next mile. So that's really unique. If you have a chance, Jim, if you get any sort of a PA there, as the runners like enter and they're getting closer, just say very quietly in the PA system, legs of lead. Legs of lead. No, legs no, of lead. They would fire me if I did that. <laughs> <laughs> I would not be asked back to announce next year. Hey, we've got more important things to talk about. We've got a couple of great guests on the line here, Rob and Trish McGregor. And they're the authors of many, many books, including the one that I'm holding in my left hand, Beyond Strange. True Tales of Alien Encounters and Paranormal Mysteries. A sentient fog that chases two men across a golf course. Alien abductions, hauntings, psychokinetic powers, and more are found in the pages of Beyond Strange. They were last on the EUP radio program March 10th, and uh, I provided that link in my newsletter to people that want to catch that prior program. They have uh, been writing for a number of years. They both publish books in their own names. Trish uh, has used at times, I think, a T. McGregor. We'll ask her about that. They've co-authored with other folks many, many books. I looked at their list of books separately and together, and it looks like that's pretty much what they do all the time. How do they find time to sleep, let alone travel down to Columbia? Wow. Hey, folks, welcome back to the program, Rob and Trish McGregor. How are you both hey, doing? Scott, we're doing good. We survived Columbia. <laughs> It looked like, I, I saw several of your photographs, it looked like a beautiful place. I'm, I'm challenged with my geography, I've never been to Columbia. Uh, what has it been like down there? Well, now it's pretty tame compared to what it was like in the 80s right. during the drug wars. So, yeah, no, it's safe. I mean, it's, we had a great time. <laughs> Nobody ever bothered us. Yeah, Cartagena is... Uh a colonial uh, city that is just beautiful. The old city is uh, w very well preserved. There's a lot of tourists from all over the world there. We went to a little village in the mountains called Ica, which is really fascinating. It's just a small village, and we had a, uh, a house we rented that was on a river, and it had a waterfall. So uh, our backyard, basically, we looked out on a waterfall. It was, it was just incredible. Didn't want to leave the place. And were you there uh, leading a tour, doing some research? Were you um, vacationing? We what used to do tours. Uh, we used to lead adventure tours to South America in the 80s. Uh, for writers. Uh, for writers, yeah. But uh, this was just our daughter uh, and some a couple of friends were going down. She asked if we wanted to uh, go go along. But they kind of went off on their own. We went, we, we were doing our thing, and so it was fun. It was a good time. Mm -hmm. And does putting yourself in a different location like that, somewhat exotic from your descriptions and pictures, does that trigger anything in terms of your writing? Yeah, I think it definitely does. Um, just, I mean, we'd like to go back to Minka and spend about a week there with our computers, <laughs> just writing. It's just a really, it's a creative environment. 
Yeah, it's, uh, it's always good to, you know, we're we're writing every day in the same, oh, but it's always good to take a break and get into a different environment, a mm-hmm. different uh, mindset, and uh, allows us to look at things in a little different way. And we always end up using this material one way or another in our books, uh, either fiction or nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Or uh- both. Rob, you were also on the program previously, um, uh, you and Bruce Gernon, and uh, you were talking about, on that show, about a subject that carries over to this book. You and Trish have done some more collecting of this. Uh, Tell us more about the electronic fog. (laughs) The guys on the golf course. (laughs) <laughs> oh, what a that's, story. That's a freaky yeah. story. Yeah, that, that's a very strange story. Yeah, well, electronic fog is something that Bruce Gernon, his whole, uh, he feels that his point, whole point in life at this time is to really try to let people know about this uh, phenomena that he believes is real and has experienced and other people have experienced. We've written about uh, these experiences, and uh, but is not accepted by mainstream science. Uh, and the sense of it is, is that there's a type of fog that attaches itself to airplanes or even to uh, cars and boats, and you feel that you are traveling through this uh, dense fog. Not not always dense, but a fog for miles after miles after miles. And uh, what what you discover is that there is, uh, if you look at the meteorological reports, there's no fog at all. What it is is uh, a fog has attached to uh, whatever vessel you're in, and this happened to uh, Bruce uh, in his airplane on a couple of occasions, and he's, uh, he's flying through this fog that is attached to him. And in his case, uh, he feels that there's different, different uh, layers, different uh, levels, I should say, of this fog. Uh, and he experienced one of them, his experience was an extreme one, where he was literally teleported 90 miles from outside Bimini to Miami Beach instantaneously. And that uh, was when uh, he was young, like 23 years old flying the plane with his father and a business partner from Andros Island to uh, West Palm Beach, and that changed his life. I mean, he at that point, uh, he had never heard, of, uh, this is 1971, he had never heard of the term Bermuda Triangle, and it was Charles Willis' book didn't come out for a couple more years, but when he started, started hearing about it, he knew he had experienced that he had been right through the heart of mm-hmm. the Bermuda Triangle. <clears throat> and that's, that's the tie-in here, folks. This is a part of the world where there have been for <clears throat> several hundred years reports of ships disappearing, uh, flights of airplanes. Um, it's, it's been a very mysterious thing. Oftentimes there's no wreckage at all. It's just like they vanish uh, and they are gone. Uh, but there's so many other instances, too, of this happening. Uh, for instance, around the time we were writing Beyond Strange, we got an email from a woman who lives in Pembroke Pines, just down the road from us, telling us how she had come across our blog. And 
she related a story about how she had, <clears throat> what she felt, she felt she had traveled through time while going from Big Pine to, uh, to Isla Morada in the Florida Keys, which is like a 58-mile trip. Mm-hmm. And for about a mile, she traveled through this really dense fog. And then suddenly the fog ended. And as she came out of it, she saw the bridge she had to come over to get to their hotel and completely freaked out knowing it wasn't possible for her to even be be there. Hmm. So she had made this 58-mile trip in about 10 minutes. Wow. Wow. Yeah, and the fog, you know. And we, we have several stories like that of people driving. And that the, this uh, second book that I wrote with Bruce Gurnan, Beyond the Bermuda Triangle, came about because uh, we're, we're receiving all of these emails, and Bruce was receiving most of them. Uh, and one day we got together and he handed me this back <coughs> Uh, emails and he said, "Take a look at this. We may have another book here." And I went through it, and I contacted Bruce. These are great stories, fascinating stories about the fog. But you know, most of these don't even take place in the Bermuda Triangle. That's where we came up with the idea of beyond the Bermuda Triangle. Mm-hmm. Okay, so ladies and gentlemen, those that aren't operating heavy machinery right now, I want to see a show of hands. <laughs> who has who has played golf? Okay, so there's a number of people holding their hands up in the listening audience right now. Does miniature golf count? Okay, so uh, Jim just said, does miniature golf count? Sure it does. <laughs> yeah, I've so, played golf. <laughs> Why I, want, not? I want you to imagine that uh, a golf course is also a nice place, serene if you will, <clears throat> to go and take a walk uh, d- to relax with a friend. Okay, so... In their book, Beyond Strange, Trish and Rob tell the story of these two guys that are just out for a stroll. And they're on this golf course. And then suddenly, from the trees, comes this wall of fog. And something, Rob, about this immediately triggers the hair going up on the back of their necks, their full senses come alert. They realize that something's going on. Were, were there precursors? It seems like from my memory that, um, that there were. They started having some physical effects. Right. Yes, that's what happened. So this is at the Biltmore Hotel in Coral Gables, uh, part of Miami one of Miami's oldest neighborhoods. And uh, this is uh, an old golf course that they built more. In fact, Babe Ruth played there, so it goes way back. And uh, so they, they had, uh, hadn't seen each other for a while, so they decided to just meet there and, uh, you know, uh, get back in touch and uh, talk about what they've been doing. So they're walking along the ninth hole. I'm just lost in conversation when they both suddenly stopped, and Hector... Uh, who's the one who told, told me about the story, and his friend's name is Danny. Hector clearly felt that he had an eerie sensation of a large hand slipping inside of his head behind his face and pressing against his brain. And at the same time, the back of his head fell as if it was burning. Uh, and he'd never felt anything like that before in his life. And before he could say anything, his friend Hector stopped at the same instant and he said he didn't want to go any further because he saw sparks 
inside of his eyes. And uh, they, that was Danny. Yeah, that was yeah. that was Danny who saw these sparks inside of his eyes, and uh, they they stopped uh, walking and talking at the same moment. They both experienced something unusual, and that's when they saw this dense wall of fog that was about forty feet wide, fifteen feet high, and it was about three hundred feet away from them between two trees. And it, Danny had lived, or uh, Hector had lived all of his life in South Florida, and he knew. Uh, when weather conditions were right for fog, but it, it was nothing like that. It was just a very nice, calm night. Uh, it wasn't rainy or anything, and there was uh, it was just unusual to see that. And the way this fog acted was also very strange. It started moving towards them, away from these trees, rolling over these hills, coming towards them, and they started backing away. And then the, the fog stops and does something very strange, it reverses direction. So, you know, instead <laughs> of a fog moving, it's dispersing. It goes back to those trees. And they're trying to figure out what happened uh, to them because uh, first this strange experience that they both had, and then this fog moving towards them. And so then the, the fog uh, starts moving again towards them, and they're backing away backing away, and uh, again it stops and starts retreating, and they think, well, this is very strange, uh, uh, what's going on here. Let's just listen to nature, see what kind of uh, uh, nature can tell us about what's going on here, because usually when something down... Not even wind. (laughs) Then suddenly, there was a reaching sound they heard that was both biological, and it sounded like it was electronic, a combination of the two, and it seemed to be about uh, 300 uh, feet away from them to one side. Then it stopped suddenly. And then they heard it again a few seconds later from another direction a little closer. And then again, and again, and from different directions and always getting closer. And suddenly this strange screeching sound was coming out right underneath their feet, uh, right in the grass. And they looking down, they they kick the grass with their feet as if there is there some kind of insects down there. Nothing there. And then they look up, and there's the fog. It's four feet away from them. They were chasing them. <laughs> uh, were tr- he said, "We're tricked. That fog is it's intel it's an inte- it's intelligent. It, uh, and there it was. And suddenly they were consumed by the fog." And they felt this horrendous sensation of uh, prickling sensation all through their bodies. And uh, they're, they're just lost in this fog. And uh, uh, Hector grabs Danny's arms, trying to lead, lead him to get one of his arms, trying to lead him out of there uh, because Danny is screaming. And Hector says, we come in peace. We mean no harm. We come in peace. We know mean no harm, and he pulled them, and they finally got out of the fog, and so uh, they, uh, they, they look back, and the fog is now drifting back, moving back again towards the direction where it had come, and so they go down this, this uh, walkway, these steps, and into the parking lot where their car was parked, 
they're they're just exhausted and exasperated and confused and, and scared. <laughs> and they they go and they sit in the car and try to consider figure out what happened to them, what that was. They look up, and here comes the fog again. It's rolling down these steps and coming right towards the parking lot. Hector starts his car, peels out of there, and gets away from there and uh, never looks back. And that was that was the very strange experience. Trish, it seemed uh, from Rob's description, again, that this fog was intelligent. Yeah, and it also seemed that it had motivation. That it, you know? so it crept it, I mean, out. It, it was in deliberate pursuit. And it wasn't or was it something behind the fog. Yeah, right. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Could, I mean, that, that's the whole thing with this fog phenomenon. I mean, when this woman went through this fog in the Keys, I mean, and, and this happened to her on uh, the multiple bridges. Okay, to connect all the Keys, she wasn't. She she knew that this was not a place there should have been fog. You know, it was not a day conducive to fog. So, I mean, really the question becomes, okay, then what is it? You know, is it an intelligent force? Is it is it guided by something else? Is it a, is it a spirit type uh, entity masked as fog? Who knows? You know, it's very strange. How does that? How does that that uh, that uh, a joke go? I'm not going to say that it was aliens, but it was aliens. <laughs> <laughs> well, I even asked this woman. I said, "Do you feel that you were abducted?" Because obviously mm-hmm. she had and not missing time, but she had, like Bruce did, a contraction of time, where she got to her destination long before she should have. Mm-hmm. And she said it was it was a possibility she had entertained. But she didn't want to explore that. Mm-hmm. This Probably is a good reason. <laughs> yeah, this is Rob and Trish McGregor. The book we're talking about. Uh, by the way, uh, Rob and Trish, this is a great cover, and uh, the texture of the cover makes you just want to hold it. Uh, Doesn't? Yeah, I love this cover. Yeah. It's called Beyond Strange: True Tales of Alien Encounters and Paranormal Mysteries. Um, there were, back in my golfing days, and I haven't golfed for a long time, there were fond memories of going out to Piner's Golf Course with some buddies and playing golf as the sun was coming up. Uh, just a great, great morning with, with buddies. Uh, but now I'm going to forever think about a golf course <laughs> in this, this fog. It's, it's aware of these two men... It creeps out, it retreats, it does that several times. Then it seems like it there, there are, yeah, there are some uh, uh, things that happen that tend to sort of camouflage its approach. So there's some deception being practiced. And didn't didn't one or both of the men say that when they were enveloped by the fog? that it felt like they were being uh, looked at or paid attention to? They felt that they were being observed and analyzed. Yeah. And it was an almost unbearable sensation. It's like hundreds of needles piercing his skin, is the way he describes it. To, to, uh, To see fog is not unusual, but to see this 
wall or block of fog, and everything else is, is clear, and then to see this advance, retreat, advance, retreat, and then through subterfuge, advance, envelop these people with their physical experiences, this is very strange. This is this is. No- I had to come after them once they were in the car. Mm-hmm. You know, when they were in the fog, he said moving in it felt surreal. It was just uh, it was so thick, uh, and uh, he said it felt like a thousand, th- felt like thousands of eyes were watching us and sizing us up as it swirled around us. That was the direct quote from Hector. Yeah, it was lucky they were able to stay together because apparently it was so dense that they, for sure. <laughs> they were disorientated. Uh, so I'm going to extrapolate here before the, the break that we take here. If this happened to two guys on a golf course, um, has it happened before? And, of course, I think about Bruce Gurdon's flight, and I think about all the mysteries from the Bermuda Triangle of the planes that suddenly have the instruments that go haywire, that they're enveloped, they can't tell which way is up or down. Right. Rob it are, also happened on Lake Michigan. Uh, Rob and, and Trish, our, our late common friend, uh, Martin Caden. Martin wrote in the book Ghosts of the Air that it happened to him also. He was with a bunch of pilots. They were flying through the Bermuda Triangle, and they actually had that same loss of instruments, and uh, they had a bunch of good people on board that they were able to fly through it, but it was dicey for a while. Doesn't make me want to go to the Bahamas. No, me neither. You know, I've, I've thought back to some of the strange things that when I was a kid, we were at Miami Beach, and we had two or three really weird experiences that happened to us down there. Uh, and, of course... With not, fog? Not, not fog, but just strange things. Uh, uh, we had uh, a, a storm out of the ocean that we were watching. We actually saw a, a ship capsized during the storm. Mm. We're just little kids. Wow. We went to a, a great big luau, a beach party, and a person in this great big group of folks seated at, at picnic tables, person right behind us, uh, basically keeled over and died. Jeez. Uh, it, was a, it was a strange, strange trip down there. Uh, Were you the, with your parents? Yes. Yep. I was a little boy, and uh, just it seemed like it, just a whole bunch of, of things happening that shouldn't be happening on a family vacation. God. Beyond Strange, True Tales of Alien Encounters and Paranormal Mysteries. This is Rob and Trish McGregor, and that's M-A-C, capital G-R-E-G-O-R, McGregor. Uh, Sino... Synosecrets.com. S Y N. Synchro. Thank you. Synchro Secrets. That's S Y N C H R O and the word secrets.com. You'll also find Rob McGregor and Trish McGregor on Facebook. 
I'm certainly enjoying the, the, the conversation, Robin Trish. Please stay right there, okay? Okay. Scott Colborn, and watch out for that fog on those golf courses. Wow, what a story. Hi dudes and dudettes, it's Carol Griswold from Women's Blues and Boogie on your community radio station. 89.3 FM, KZUM Lincoln, and KZUM HD. Support for KZUM comes from family-owned and operated Butheris Mesa and Love Funeral Home at 40th and A Streets in Lincoln. Offering services that allow families to plan ahead according to personal wishes, chapel facilities to accommodate all faiths, and grief support materials for the family following a service. More information is available at 402-488-0934 and online at bmlfh.com. And Pinewood Bowl Theater, presenting the Great Pinewood Bluegrass Festival on Sunday, May 20th at the Pinewood Bowl Theater in Lincoln's Pioneers Park. With horseshoes and hand grenades, mandolin orange, the devil makes three, and green sky bluegrass. Tickets at ticketmaster.com. May 31st is Give to Lincoln Day, a citywide day of charitable giving to support the nonprofits that make Lincoln a great place to live. This is KZUM Cares, a special segment this month highlighting some of those organizations. Located at 6100 O Street at Gateway Mall, the Art Reach Project is a nonprofit organization for artists and art lovers that is not your typical art studio. The ArtReach Project is not just a studio for creating art, but for creating artists who make a difference. Offering classes, workshops, birthday parties, summer camps, creative cafe, creative gathering, and events with artists. Their goal is to leave a positive impact in the culture while functioning as an outreach into the community. For more information, visit ArtReachProject.org. This has been KZUM Cares, a special presentation that highlights a new local nonprofit every day in May to celebrate Give to Lincoln Day, the citywide day of charitable giving to benefit the many organizations that make Lincoln a great place to live, is Thursday, May 31st. For more on Give to Lincoln Day, visit kzum.org. Full moon lights the silver rails winding around dark mountains and over steep gorges of jagged rock in one freezing cold rushing black mountain river. I wish there was enough time to describe all of the funny twists and turns that led up to now, but there isn't enough time because there's a ticking clock and the two passengers we care most about don't know anything about it. To see what happens next, visit read.gov to read The Exquisite Corpse, a riveting adventure pieced together by John Sheska, Shannon Hale, Daniel Handler, and other popular authors. Explore new worlds. Read. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. Far from the din of commercial culture and just this side of the abstract is a place I call Mesoterra. I'm Vic Valverde, your tour guide for an eclectic musical excursion on a program called Mesoterra. Saturdays, 12 noon until 1.30, right here on KZUM. 
Scott Colborn with our special guests, Rob and Trish McGregor. Colleen and Jim are in the studio here. And uh, tell us about um, Wesley Meeks. Wait, um, Scott, I want to mention there was, there's another instance of fog. Oh, please do. Common, that's common off the coast of Chile. Uh, it, this island is kind of mysterious. It's called Chiloway. And one of the things that people believe in is a ghost ship. And in 1980, there was um, a Chilean author who believed he had sighted the ghost ship, the Caliuche, in one of its altered forms as a small launch that approached him and his four companions in fog. And even though the boat passed within several feet of their their boat, they didn't see anybody on board. They kept rowing frantically because they were afraid that the ghost ship was going to appear suddenly. In the, in the fog. Mm-hmm. And this ghost ship was known to be manned by what I think are like men in black, and people were abducted. So it, this guy, the uh, author, they rode and rode. Finally, at dawn, they found they hadn't moved a foot. They were in the same spot. They hadn't advanced in any direction. And he felt that the fog was responsible. Mm-hmm. Well, there's another one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, if anybody out there listening to the live show or the uh, the archive that will be posted uh, has uh, uh, anecdotal information about this this uh, fog that appears to have sentience, that appears to have awareness, um, uh, please do contact Rob and Trish. Uh, interesting love stuff. These stories. <laughs> yeah, the and story I. Of Wesley, the I, story of Wesley also starts with fog. Yeah. Oh, yeah sorry. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, next story. He he is a uh, his story is interesting because he spent years as a police officer. He's now uh, retired from the police force in Central Texas, but he works in security at a uh, uh, mid-sized hospital, and uh, he's a director of security. And he's had all these experiences over the years that he just cannot talk about with uh, the normal people he interacts with uh, during his day as a police officer and mm-hmm. a security officer. But when he found me, he had a lot to say. <laughs> uh, his story started in uh, July 4th, 1972, uh, in Gatesville, Texas. And it was a situation where he had uh, been uh, at a... Uh, Thanksgiving, or not Thanksgiving, a Fourth of July gathering with his family, and they had left the, I think it was the grandmother's house, and they were driving away, and this fog uh, came around their their car, and then they, they saw, but then they saw a, a craft out in front of them. They all pointed at it, and it was like a, a saucer-shaped craft, and it was uh, several hundred feet up in front of them, and then it uh, it just uh, disappeared after that. And it seemed like Wesley was the only one who was really impacted by this experience. Because he talked about it with his, his brothers and family members, and they said, yeah, we saw it, and, you know, it, uh, and they didn't think much of it. Wesley had would, would continue to have uh, contact. Uh, he would never see a craft again. But he would have visits by these small gray beings 
who would circle around his bed and he would lift up from the bed and they would go rotate in circles around him and he would be spinning around and he would have these experiences starting you know when he was uh just uh i think he was nine or ten at the time and uh they continued on for years and and what also happened with uh wesley which is interesting is he developed an ability to travel out of body obes and uh so in the story we write about is mostly it starts with the the alien visitors that he had but then goes into his experiences uh and out of body travel so it's a fascinating story mm-hmm. he has this whole other life <laughs> yes uh trish the the point that you and rob make in the book several times is that uh Consensus reality is limited when we start to consider these witness testimonies. There is a lot more going on than we've all agreed to in our everyday consensus reality. And, and you know, the, the thing that's kind of sad about all this is that Maybe not as much now, but people are generally reluctant to talk about it for fear of ridicule. Mm-hmm. And then you have skeptics who say, oh, you know, these anecdotes don't mean anything. Mm-hmm. But nobody should ever deny their own experience. That's my sense. I was really lucky early on as my interest began to d- develop in the paranormal. Uh, I was primarily interested in the UFO phenomenon. But it immediately struck me that these other fields were also somehow interrelated. And I've I think tried it's all interrelated. <laughs> yes, I've I've tried to carry that forward and I've had many conversations with other ufologists, uh, some very, very well known folks, where I've said that um, I understand the need to specialize and just laser sharp focus on one thing but if you do that and you're not aware you're excluding a whole bunch of other stuff that that same witness may be talking about the ufologist that wants to get just the report of the bright light seen out in the backyard when the witness says that They've been experiencing also visitations from a departed grandfather, mm-hmm. and they're having premonitory dreams. They're experiencing synchronicities and deja vu. Uh, they've had uh, contact, uh, very, very weird stuff going on with, uh, with uh, mail being interrupted, phone calls uh, intercepted. All these things are interrelated. But if, if, the, right. if the researcher just says, yeah, I'm not interested in that, I'm just going to focus on the bright light that you saw in the backyard, I think they miss so much in the final analysis. Yeah, I do too. Yeah, and uh, what you're saying reminds me of a story, uh, that something that we experienced ourselves. Uh, this was back in the early 80s when we attended a UFO conference, and Bud Hopkins was uh, one of the speakers, and he had gone on the radio and people were calling in, and there was uh, with the, their experiences. One 
particular caller really caught his attention because he thought this was a real, real true story and there was something to it. And he wanted to go uh, meet her. She lived about, this, this uh, uh, conference was in Hollywood, Florida, and he wanted to go meet her, but he didn't have any car. He just uh, came on a taxi from the, the airport in Lauderdale. So uh, we were nearby and we're talking to him and we said, we'll drive you up there. Uh, and, uh, by the, and so... Uh, he made arrangements, and we, we we drove up one evening and met this couple, uh, and they also had a child about 11, and she was talking about her abduction experiences and being lifted and floated down the hall and right through the wall and up into a craft. And the thing that, about it was I was noticing, and Bud made and no... Uh, inquiries at all about this was the man, the husband. Mm-hmm. He's a big guy. Very strange guy. White hair. And he had this gold... He was dressed in black. And dressed in black, and he had this gold Satan uh, thing, uh, necklace, uh, with this gold Satan uh, ha- uh, pendant hanging. And, and immediately, I, I started talking to him, uh, what's this about? And he said he was... He had been a Baptist minister, and he changed sides. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, and so Whitley's just talking with the woman. And not Whitley, Bud. Excuse me. <laughs> I'm mixing up friends. <laughs> so Bud uh, takes her back and uh, hypnotizes her, and she goes through this whole experience. It's just fascinating because it, it went, uh, she went up in this tube with these three beings, and she lived in Lake Worth at the time where the National Enquirer was very, located very close to her. And at the time, the National Enquirer was the one publication that was writing about aliens and UFOs. And uh, it was Christmas time, and the National Enquirer always had a big Christmas display, huge street, and they had a little train, and all people come there from all over the place to see this huge display. And so she points to it, uh, to, the, to the aliens as she's being... Re- uh, rising up in this uh, tube towards their craft, and uh, and I remember asking her, "What did they think?" And she said, "They weren't impressed." <laughs> <laughs> now we later had this couple over for dinner and invited some psychics that we knew who were local people just to see what their impressions would be. And the evening was incredibly strange. And at the end of it. Yeah, that got really strange. Yeah, it got very strange. We we had sliding glass doors in the living room. We were in a condo, and we were on the ground floor. And all of a sudden, through the glass doors, I see this figure. It was late, like 1 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, and we'd just been talking about men in black at the time. And there's somebody standing, staring <laughs> through the window about 1 o'clock in the morning. And we all turn, and he backs away, and uh, I go up there open the sliding glass doors, and there he is. He could have just slipped away into the night, but instead, he's in this parking lot uh, outside. He's running between uh, cars. He's bent over, and he looks back. He runs over to the next car, ducks down, looks back. (laughs) So uh, one of us, it was Utrish, called the police, right? Yeah. And usually to get a response from the police will take a while, maybe 15, 20 minutes or so at least. Within two minutes, there were like seven or eight cop cars r- come ripping in to the neighborhood. Uh, into our complex. 
into our complex, this gated complex, and uh, we are, what is going on? Well, it turns out that someone had been murdered uh, less than a mile away, and they were investigating it and looking for the per- person. And we don't know if this was the person or not, but that's, that's what got them over there. So that was the end of the evening. With uh, We never had the back. <laughs> yeah, uh, boy, I very, very strange. Uh, I, I, have, uh, I have met... Years ago, when I owned a bookstore, I met a guy that came down from Omaha who claimed to be a uh, practicing Satanist, and uh, he had a uh, six or seven uh, young women with him uh, that he sort of referred to as his harem and would ask them to do things for him like would you go over there and get that for me and would you scratch my back and and uh, just <laughs> trying to show that that he had this sort of power over them yeah. and uh, very very uneasy I, I couldn't wait to get the guy out of my store did he buy anything <laughs> I, I don't think so I think he came down to sort of check out what my store was all about to check me out and he probably picked up on my vibe that I was not interested at all. Yeah. Yeah. There, there, you know, with with UFOs and MIBs and and all the the lore associated with with aliens and everything else. I mean, there's so many different facets to it. And what we found is that synchronicity is often one of the precursors mm-hmm. or an intricate part of it. Speaking of synchronicity, you guys just posted a synchronicity of mine on your... How do you like that? <laughs> very interesting. I, I appreciate that. That, that, <laughs> that photograph uh, that is my Facebook profile picture, that was part of a group photograph taken at the Starworks UFO Symposium in Chicago in uh, March of, of 2014. Excuse me, May of 2014. Is that an orb above your head? And that was a speaker lunch, and after we were done in this private room, we all kind of lined up, and there were a bunch of cameras on a table in front of us, and people were picking up cameras and taking pictures and for the archives, and that was an orb uh, over my head. Uh-huh. Uh, That's and, fascinating. When I saw that... Yeah. And uh, speaking of synchronicity, that just happened to come up Today, on the same day that we're uh, talking to you, that wasn't planned. Uh, in fact, that ha- we have a list of uh, probably uh, a dozen or fifteen different blog posts, and they get moved around and shuffled around uh, as we we change things. And uh, Trish said, "Did you did you put this up intentionally uh, at this date?" And I said, "No, I just randomly put it up there, and it got moved." And uh, mm. you know, it so. It, interesting that it came up the same day we're talking to you. <laughs> well, I, I, I want to come back to what Trish said, that this idea of synchronicity and the UFO phenomenon, uh, this more than casual coincidence, I, I, I wonder if, if that awareness is already there and the UFO experience triggers or amplifies it, uh, or perhaps the UFO experience itself 
is the precursor for this to sort of come on very strong. The, the people, Rob and Trish, that I've met over the years that have had a UFO close encounter, uh, either with a ship or with beings, it has, I think, understandably, it has totally altered their life. They don't look at things the same way after, after yeah, <laughs> after that experience. Um, everything is, is looked at through a different lens. And uh, so, do you have any more stories of, of UFOs and synchronicity? Yeah, actually, uh, in Aliens in the Backyard, it's called UFO Encounters, Abductions, and Synchronicity. Because at, when we were collecting stories for that book, all of a sudden we realized, well, what the heck? There, synchronicity is in all of this stuff, mm-hmm. you know? It's just, it, it's, right. it's woven through every single story. And uh, w- w- one of the stories, one of the main stories of that book, Aliens in the Backyard, was about uh, a man uh, who lived in rural Montreal who had this uh, alien experience, well, it was a UFO experience at 5 o'clock in the morning when he stepped outside and saw these beams of light. He lived uh, adjacent to a farmer's field. Out over the field were these, uh, I don't know, 13 beams that were shooting down uh, into the earth. There was beautiful light, Pulling around inside these beams, and it was like he was pulling something up from the earth up to something up above that he couldn't see. Uh, it was dark, dark out, and uh, he, he went inside and uh, got a, woke up his wife. Said, "You got to see this." And uh, he reached out. His dog let his back, but the dog refused to go out. It was strange, so he kind of nudged the dog outside with. Uh, Foot, and then his wife, he, uh, she, she sees uh, this as well, and suddenly they're, they're watching these beams, and suddenly there's this craft that comes in like a saucer craft, but it's coming in vertically, uh, like a coin standing up on a desk, mm-hmm. and it uh, comes in between the house and a weeping willow tree coming right towards them, and he, he, he bends over to grab the dog to run inside the house, and they're, they're suddenly surrounded by this gold light. And that's the last thing he remembers. The next thing he knows, he's taking a shower. And uh, he doesn't know how he got there and what happened. His wife is sound asleep in bed. It's almost like a dream, but it was very real to him and his wife. Uh, and the dog, which ended up getting sick as a result of, uh, of uh, the, the experience. Tell him about the synchro. Yeah, okay, the, the synchro, uh, synchronicity involved that. He started, uh, uh, he went to his neighbor and his, uh, uh, asked the neighbor if they had uh, seen anything uh, the night before or the, the early, in the early morning because they get up early. And they had, uh, the man said no, but the, the, uh, his, his wife comes up and says, you saw, uh, what did we call him? We changed his name. Charles. Charles, Charles you saw a UFO, didn't you? And he said, why do you say that? Because I have a crazy cousin, <laughs> medium, and he called me a couple of weeks ago, and he says, There's going to be, you're going to be able to see a UFO in your backyard and if you're, if you're watching up very soon. 
and I didn't see it, but you saw it, Charles. And so he, he's really stunned by this synchronicity. So he starts uh, looking into uh, synchronicity, goes into into a bookstore in Montreal, and uh, he, or first he goes online, and he sees, uh, looking at synchronicity, and he comes up and he sees a, uh, a, a photo that shows these beams shooting down, and it's, it's on a synchronicity uh, blog, and he, he sees these beams, and that's the same, uh, what, very similar to what he had seen, and the, and it was similar. Well, you got it backwards. It was first he bought the book. Yeah, that's right. First he bought the book on synchronicity. Our book. <laughs> yeah, our book on synchronicity. Reading it, and then he then he uh, 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 googles synchronicity, sees this, and it's, it's, it turns out to be on our blog. And so now he he says, I got to contact these people because here I'm reading about synchronicity, and I go to the I end up uh, inadvertently finding their their blog, and it, it shows exactly what I saw in my backyard. So that's how, how we met him and got his story. So that started with the synchronicity, and he had all kinds of other ones that he told us that are, that are in that story. And that are truly strange. <laughs> uh, this is Robin Trish McGregor, and speaking of strange, that's what we're talking about, folks. Beyond Strange, <laughs> True Tales of Alien Encounters and Paranormal Mysteries. Uh, when we come back from the break, can you tell us a little bit more about the Chapter 5, Walking into the Past? That's an especially story. interesting story. And again, Rob and Trish, I'm so fortunate to have you free on your busy schedule to be with us. This is just a delight. And please stay tuned. We'll be right back. I'm Scott Colborn. You're listening to Exploring Unexplained Phenomena with Jim and Colleen. And you guys and gals, stay tuned for Victor at 12 o'clock with Mesoterra. Meanwhile, there is this.
energy Breathing deep One endless inhalation Of sweet, sweet synergy And time was eternal And the moment was now And I was so inexorably me Drifting toward a timeless ocean Awake inside a dream Hi dudes and dudettes, it's Carol Griswold from Women's Blues and Boogie on your community radio station, 89.3 FM, KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. Support for This Week in Lincoln comes from The Bay, The Bourbon Theater, Duffy's Tavern and The Zoo Bar. This is live music happening this week in Lincoln. On Saturday, May 5th, Blay will celebrate their album release at Duffy's Tavern at 8. The Bourbon Theater's official house party for Cinco de Mayo starts at 10, and the Zoo Bar hosts Gabe with Pants at 6, followed at 9 by Grobe, Threesome Egos, and Joseph Daniel. That's what's happening this week in Lincoln. Support for KZUM comes from the Bourbon Theater, Presenting Reverend Horton Heat with Big Sandy and his Flyright Boys, live in concert on Sunday, September 16th at 8 p.m. General admission and reserve tickets on sale at 10 a.m. on May 4th at the box office and bourbontheater.com. My name is Manny Morales. I'm 45 and I coach youth football. It's still hard to believe because the high school me was a work in progress. But big brothers, big sisters give me a real role model. And the young me needed a role model bad. My bigger brother's name is Ray, and Ray is the reason that this seven-year-old grows up to be a role model himself. Whether you donate money or time, you're helping Big Brothers Big Sisters help a child. Start something today at BigBrothersBigSisters.org. Brought to you by Big Brothers Big Sisters and the Ad Council. Far from the din of commercial culture and just this side of the abstract is a place I call Mesoterra. I'm Vic Valverde, your tour guide for an eclectic musical excursion on a program called Mesoterra. Saturdays, 12 noon until 1.30, right here on KZUM. And the program last week was great. All those British bands that I grew up with listening to. Stay tuned for Vic again at 12 noon with Mesoterra. Our special guest today, Rob and Trish McGregor. And uh, Rob and Trish, from your book, Beyond Strange, tell us about uh, the story about walking into the past. That's a great story. <laughs> this story begins in, uh, on Thanksgiving Day of 1964. <clears throat> uh, John Murphy was in the U.S. Coast Guard, and he was, uh, the, his uh, Coast Guard cutter was docked at uh, Pennell's Wharf in St. George, Bermuda. And so after uh, Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving dinner on the ship, uh, John and three of his buddies decided to, uh, they had shore leave, and they, they went into town. 
St. George. And synchronistically, they come across four young women who were nursing students uh, uh, with the U.S. Navy Nursing Corps. And they, they had just taken a hop on a, uh, uh, Air, uh, Air Force, uh, a cargo ship and, uh, for, uh, like a three day trip. And, uh, so they, they, uh, they, uh, the guys asked, do you want a tour of the ship? So they went and gave them the tour. And by the time they got off the ship, they'd, they'd all kind of paired up. And there, there was one particular, uh, nursing student that, John was really attracted to, and uh, he was. And the odd thing, she felt very familiar, and she felt very familiar with him, as, as if they had, as, as if they already knew each other. So she, uh, she later told me she was very uh, comfortable being with John, and they went off on their own, walked down the beach, down uh, way down to this fort, uh, Saint Catherine, and uh, they sat on a wall there by this old fort. Turns black, and John feels like he's falling 
into a black hole, and the same thing happened to Barbara, and they both just pass out. Two hours late, two hours pass, they wake up and look around. They're still right in the village. Everything looks the same, but they're very confused. Why did we fall asleep uh, like that? And she said, I, I got to get back. Uh, to, the, uh, to the hotel. My friends are going to be wondering what happened. So they retraced their way, uh, head out of the, the village, and uh, go back. Uh, he, he drops her off. And uh, she, uh, there is kind of an awkward departure. But she's, uh, she's been here a couple of days, and they're leaving. She's leaving in the morning. And, but they, they exchange addresses, uh, and, and that's the last that he sees her. Uh, then she leaves in the morning. He's back on a ship, and it's like two or three days before he gets leave again that he can go back on on shore or on shore shortly. And and where he wants to go is back to the village because he's had a dream about this village, and he wants to go back and see the village again and find out more about its history and sit on that wall and write a letter to Barbara. And so he he gets uh, the shore leave goes in follows that same path, the same uh, way, goes up the hill and looks down, there, there's no village. It's just an open field and there's some cows out there. And he's totally baffled. He's wondering, did I go in the wrong place? He looks around exactly the place. Uh, and so then he goes, uh, uh, just retraces the steps back into the village and goes to a bar. He needs a drink after that. And he, he then starts uh, talking to the bartender, and he asks, "Did there used to be a little village nearby in that direction of the of the fort?" And the bartender looks at him. It's an old guy, and he he says, "Yeah, uh, the village of St. Catherine is a little hamlet, that, but that uh, that was destroyed in the the great hurricane of 780, and it was never rebuilt." So now John is really uh, uh, amazed that they had walked into the past into this into this village. And so uh, the next thing, he leaves, and the bartender uh, calls out to him and says, hey, uh, you know, uh, there's an old sailor who lives lives in St. George that uh, knows a lot about that old village because his relatives, his great-great-great-grandparents uh, used to uh, live there, and uh, he has memorabilia from that village uh, so at the time, so he wants to, and of course wants to go meet him, but he's, he's in England at the time, and so he doesn't get a chance to meet him then. But John uh, knows that uh, the Coast Guard is going to be coming back, and so it's the next April when he returns to uh, St. George, and this time he goes in and he, he finds the captain. The old captain is there, and he introduces himself uh, as someone who's interested in that village, and he says that he's uh, the, the old sailor is kind of confused about why this man wants to see the uh, uh, talk about this village. But he says then he introduces himself as a, a fellow sailor, and he's done the Coast Guard cutter. And so the, uh, the old sailor, uh, uh, the old captain, lets him into the house, and he he goes in and opens this uh, cabinet up, pulls out some pictures, and great-great-grandparents, and uh, their uh, portraits that were painted when they were uh, for their for their wedding, and John looks at the, the woman, and she looks 
exactly like Barbara. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he, he just thinks that, that, by now he's thinking that he and Barbara had lived in that village themselves. And, uh, and then now he's thinking that they may have been the, the old sea captain's great-great-grandparents. And so uh, they were both killed uh, in, in that hurricane. Well, to top it off, there's John, John and Barbara, <laughs> identical names, which really uh, amazed him. And so uh, they, uh, they were both killed. Everybody was, was killed in that uh, village in this, when this uh, hurricane swept through. But in the morning, a midwife found, the, uh, uh, found Bar- Barbara. She was nine months pregnant, and she cut her open and saved the baby. And that baby turned out to be the, the old sea captain's great-great-grandmother. Uh, and so that's where the whole legacy, the connection with the village, still existed, because he was the only really uh, uh, descendant of anybody who mm-hmm. was living in that village. So it wasn't just time travel, it was reincarnation as well. Combination of time travel and, and reincarnation. So he, but, uh, so meanwhile, John is uh, communicating, sending letters back and forth with Barbara because he's very interested in her. And, uh, but he doesn't tell her about the, that the village wasn't there, but he doesn't want her to think that he's crazy. Uh, and so he's holding off on that. And until finally, when after he meets the captain, then he, he has the story down and he's ready to tell her. He's going to write her a letter, but he receives the letter from her instead, and it's a Dear John letter, the Dear John type letter where I don't want to see you, I don't want to communicate with you again. She says, I'm getting married, um, and we, uh, we, can't, we can't communicate anymore, uh, write each other. And so he never gets the chance to tell her about it. So years go by, and the Internet comes along, and he, he starts searching for her, and it takes several months, but uh, this is about eight, nine years ago. He finally uh, tracks her down. To, she's living to, she had come from Wisconsin on that flight to Bermuda, but now she's living in Minnesota, and he actually finds her, gets her telephone number. Uh, she's a nurse and a lawyer as well, and uh, he calls her and leaves a message. Hours go by, and he returns the call and says, he says, do you remember me? We met in Bermuda, went into that little village. She said, of course, yes, I remember you. Uh, and then he, he tells her the story that the village isn't, isn't there at all. And uh, so over the years, they've been uh, uh, communicating back and forth, uh, telephone calls uh, since then. And so... Uh, I, I got a hold of Barbara and talked to her. She, she verified John's story to me, and, you know, she said uh, she wasn't so sure. She didn't know. She was 19 years old at the time, and she didn't really even know what reincarnation was, so she hadn't really thought about John as being somebody that she had known in a past life. But she says, now I've been studying Buddhism, and uh, very very open to that idea so that is a, it, it's a, a full circle in that story it covers years <laughs> what an interesting story to have people that uh, are out for a walk literally walk down this uh, deserted quiet lane and come across 
a hamlet that is very physical in that they try the church doors and the doors are solid. They've got their hands in the doors. The lock, it's locked. It, the door squeaks. They right. sit on a wall that a is wall that's near a, a cemetery. They lay down on the ground. Uh, so they're inter- interacting physically with the environment. Uh, mm-hmm. What an incredible What's story. What's amazing to me is how he tracked down the old sea captain, you know, he went back and kept digging and digging for answers. Right. And when they woke up from that two-hour snooze, whatever happened to them at that time, they're still in the village. You know, you'd think that that would be the time where the village would be gone. But it wasn't. The village was still there. Mm -hmm. An interesting part to me. And then they walked out of the village, and then it was never there again. I've heard stories about people that have gone to places ostensibly that they've never visited before, and when they arrive there, it's like uh, they've spent time there before. They know mm-hmm. where things are. They can predict if you go down this street and turn right or left, you're going to find this. And it's not. That has to be in Edinburgh. Yeah, it's not a case of somebody having done uh, Google Map research or no. satellite research before they got there. It's this uh, knowing that that one has been there before. Mm-hmm. One of the interesting things about this story is nobody has ever told the... He's never told the story to other people before. He's written about it before. Uh, but uh, this was the first time it was published. And I always thought, as I was writing this, this story should really be something on one of these uh, cable channel documentaries that take these people... Take this, these two people back back there and to that place and tell that story. And so over the past year, I had the opportunity to talk to uh, documentary uh, production people uh, on three, three different uh, occasions, three different uh, companies. They were, the, the first two were both talking about doing a television series on the Bermuda Triangle, and they were both very interested in the... Uh, in that story, but as things happen with television, nothing has, uh, oftentimes, you know, the ideas pop up and then they disappear, and, and both of those, uh, nothing has come about on either of those, but then I, I was contacted by uh, Ancient Aliens, and uh, they were doing something related to the Bermuda Triangle, and uh, interviewing my co-author, Bruce Stern, and they wanted to interview me as well, and so I told them about this story, and they were fascinated. And they wanted to get the, the, the couple together, too. But unfortunately, John is, uh, is sick. He's, he's not doing well. And uh, Barbara was hesitant about uh, being filmed because she's still, she's, uh, uh, she's still working and has uh, in a, kind of an important position. And she was wary mm-hmm. and, and still married. She was worried about uh, being a part of it. But she totally you know, allowed me to write about it, and, but just to only use her first name about it uh, in, the, in the story. Uh, Fascinating but, story here. So we, so we weren't able to get them together back in Bermuda to see what... <laughs> but uh, uh, it is coming up uh, either end of this month or early next month on Ancient Aliens, their 11th and final season. Okay, Rob and Trish, all the best. We're out of time. I'll send people to your uh, website. 
<clears throat> that's Synchro Secrets, S-Y-N-C-H-R-O, and the word secrets.com. And it's a pleasure, as always, to have you both here. And please feel like the well, door is fun. open for another conversation. We love talking to you, Scott. <laughs> we have a book coming out in August, uh, <laughs> Spirit Communication. Fantastic. All the best, Robin Trish. Thank you. Thanks so much. I know. Scott Colborn, we're out of time. I'll wish Jim and Colleen well, as well as you guys and gals out there. Join us next week for more exploring unexplained phenomena. Less than my energy.